We are in a series called Breakthrough. It's looking at the book of Revelation, and we're going to look today at this controversial question of when is the millennium? And I know for many of you, you come to church, maybe you didn't expect to have this amazing experience of sending people off to do kingdom work. And likewise, you thought, well, we're going to talk about some theological subject. Yes, it's actually wonderful to slow down and to look at even controversial topics because Jesus often breaks through. Think, think in your mind of a home that has no windows and no doors. Imagine this kind of home. You're sitting there, no windows, no, door, no doors. It needs a breakthrough from outside. No one would really want to live there, and yet Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian philosopher, has looked at us. We're a lot like those over in Munich. We're enjoying beer. We're driving our BMWs, and we're living life like there's no supernatural world that breaks through. He says that we've ignored the spiritual and the unseen and the enchanted world, and we only believe in what we can see in the here and now. He says, what if we actually, sitting in that home, if you will, with no windows, listen to the bushes or the trees in the wind hitting the home from the outside? Can you imagine sitting inside, oh, there's no spiritual reality, but you hear wind and something hitting the home. You wonder, could there be a breakthrough? Could there really be a God? Could there be Jesus? Could there be this thousand-year reign of His kingdom? Satan wants you to plug your ears and to close your eyes to anything outside of a a home without windows. But in Revelation chapter 20 we see the Spirit of God break through with what's really going on. Out of honor to God's Word, would you please stand? I'm going to read to you the first ten verses of Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares... In the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil 
who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, many of us are probably aware of these images like lake of fire and the bottomless pit, and maybe we've had conversations about how mysterious this all is. Father, we believe that your Spirit worked through the Apostle John and parted the curtains of the heavens and showed John the coming of your kingdom. Lord, I pray right now that your kingdom would come here at Metro North, even this day, on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to see what John sees in the Revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. With your Bibles open, please be seated. When you hear the word millennium, what picture pops to your head? Do we have the AV up yet, guys? I I was thinking of this, right? What's the name of this ship? The Millennium Falcon. I was seven years old when this ship was being sold everywhere. And if you think of that, why would they call this ship back in 1977 the Millennium Falcon? Falcon. I was thinking, probably because Star Wars, this far, far away galaxy, had to have this futuristic feel. In the future, this spaceship that could go here and there was the Millennium Falcon. We we have this idea of futuristic ideas. I don't know what picture pops up into your mind. What we need to do with Scripture is ask the deeper question, what does the word millennium mean? What does the word millennium mean? It comes from the Latin word mille, which means thousand. Did you notice when I was reading just ten verses, one thousand was mentioned six separate times? It's quite the theme in Revelation 20. Thousand is where we get mille in ennium. That's just the Latin word for years. John, who has a breakthrough from Jesus to us today, is really interested in this thousand years. And you need to know that sincere, serious students of Scripture have argued about the meaning of the millennium for 2,000 years. We have to have some grace with each other when we actually talk about this, listening closely to the arguments from Scripture. Why so many arguments? Well, they all agree on this. They do care about the future. If you follow Jesus, you care about what's going to happen in the future. And maybe you think, I don't care about the future. I just live for the here and now. I don't think that's actually true. All of us actually live with a vision of the future and it affects our present. Think about all of you yesterday. You looked at the sky and it looked rainy, didn't it? Those of you that didn't want to get wet were considering the future reality that it might rain And your vision of the future always affects your plans in the present. If you really believe it's going to rain in the future, what are you going to grab before you leave? An umbrella. Now, some of you don't care, but most of you think, I don't want to get my nice hair wet or my clothes wet. Your vision of the future absolutely affects your plans in the present. Now, if you're not a Christian, you hear about Christians arguing about a thousand years and it really bugs you. In fact, you don't even want to get involved in that little tribe of Christians. Let me remind you, Christians, though they've been arguing for 2,000 years about the meaning of the 1,000 years, all agree 
on the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed says that we all believe in unity that Jesus is going to come again. It's just not true that even though, yes, there are 20,000 denominations, it is not true that they do not all agree that Jesus is literally coming back. We just don't know when. That's the million-dollar question. When is the millennium? The title for today, if you're a guest or if you want to follow along and you're part of the family, is The Millennium Made Meaningful. And you need to know that my burden is not that you walk away today just having an intellectual knowledge of this view. I have a deep pastoral burden for you today. I don't think many of you, along with myself, know what time we're living in. My wife was pregnant over and over, and I remember each time she said, it's about time we got to have this baby. Do you actually think that you're living right now in a spiritually pregnant time, an opportunity time, a time when a breakthrough could happen? I think Revelation chapter 20 is going to show us this. There's three things today I want you to see that will help the millennium be made meaningful. And maybe you will take seriously what time you're living in. Number one, the millennium is made meaningful when we see it as a symbol, not as a statistic. Revelation chapter 21 to 3. I want you to listen and ask yourself, are these literal things or symbols? Verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him, here's that phrase, for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and he shut it and sealed it over him. Revelation, we've been learning, is made up of many symbols. In chapter 1, seven churches, we learned, are symbolized by seven lampstands. Why? Is Metro North Church really a lampstand? Are churches physical, literal lampstands? Well, no. Chapter 1 ends by saying the seven lampstands were the seven churches. They are figuratively or symbolically likened to lampstands. Why? Why would a church be like a lampstand at such a time as this? Because a lampstand in that culture would light up a temple that was full of darkness. And the church right now gives light as God's temple to the dark world. When Lizzie and Sam are at Oktoberfest drinking a beer, and if we've got Baptists here, they're Presbyterian ministers, it's okay. When they're drinking a beer with someone, they are light. Now, they're not literally a lampstand, but they are bringing light when most people are drinking away their sorrows. They're trying to anesthetize the pain of their life. The light shows up. And Revelation would say the church is like a lampstand, but that's a symbol. John sees a number of things before he mentions a thousand years six times. He sees an angel, a key, a bottomless pit, a chain, a dragon. Is there a physical, literal, one-to-one correspondence between what he sees and what is? The key, for instance, symbolizes authority. If someone has a key, they can have access to a place or they can put someone under restraint 
or incarceration. Is there really a physical chain around a dragon's physical leg when the dragon is representing the spiritual Satan? Is there a bottomless pit? Think about that for a minute. Is there this pit, literally, that doesn't have a bottom? I know some of you might be getting uncomfortable. Howard, are you saying that the whole Bible is just spiritual and it didn't really happen? I'm not saying that at all. Remember, the type of literature that Revelation is is called apocalypse. It is full of symbols. In fact, the first verse I want you to read with me, Revelation 1 verse 1, does this literal literature deal with symbol? Read it with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Everybody now. And he sent and... Say that a little bit louder so we're on the same page. He sent the revelation and... Interesting. It's the first verse in the first chapter about things that must shortly come to pass and we're dealing with signs. When you see a a sign on the road that shows a Chick-fil-A milkshake, that sign is symbolizing the reality somewhere else, but it's a sign. 1,000 is a symbol, not a statistic. That's how you can make the millennium meaningful. In the story of God, the Scriptures, 1,000 comes up over and over. Did you notice that John read it for us before we confessed our sin? That God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It says in Psalm 90, verse 4, a thousand years to God is like a day. It says in Psalm 84, 10, one day in your court is better than a thousand anywhere else. I get that feeling when I see Carter and the worship team. I'll bet if you walked up to Sarah Grace and said, Sarah Grace, one day where you can lead worship, or a thousand days anywhere else. What's better? She's like, oh my goodness. She would, she would quote this one day with the people of God singing to God. It's better than a thousand days anywhere else. Don't you get that sense from our worship team? Take a look at this image. The psalm that says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's literally true, but it's symbolically true too. Isn't it true that God actually owns the cattle on the one thousand and first hill? Of course he does. See, 10 is a number of quantitative fullness. And when you cube it, you have a fullness. Does 1,000 years happen before or after Jesus returns? This is the question. Does this 1,000 years happen before or after Jesus returns? Oh, Christians have been fighting about this. Let's not uh, hurl unfair allegations to Christians when we talk about this. It's not unhelpful. It's not helpful. There are three views that have come to the forefront. Three ways of looking at this. I need you all to kind of wake up. I know you're in a worship service, but we have to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. You will meet Christians that hold to one of these views. I wonder which one you hold to right now because of the Scripture. Each of these views should be awarded for what it sees in Scripture. Oh, each view has a great angle. But it also has a blind spot because the view overlooks something in Scripture. Here's the first view. It's called pre-millennialism. Let's put that picture up. Think about the word pre-millennialism. Christ has already come, and then what's going to happen is 
Christ will come a second time and the millennium will happen. That's where you get the idea of pre-millennium. The second coming breaks through before 1,000 literal years. Now, this view wins an award for being the most passionate about the return of Christ. If you meet a Christian that says, I totally believe that Jesus will come a second time and we'll have a 1,000 literal years on earth in Jerusalem where Jesus is reigning, they are excited about the return of Jesus. And some of you rarely think about the fact that Jesus is coming again. We should thank God for those that hold this view. And yet it has some blind spots I don't know if you're aware of. Those that have a premillennial view read the book of Revelation chronologically, and it was never meant to be read that way. Chapter 19, for instance, does describe a war and the return of Jesus, and they think, well, chapter 20 obviously follows, and there's this millennial 1,000-year rule. But John tells us what he sees next in Revelation, not what happens next. Often what he sees next, like we saw last week in chapter 12, where a woman gave birth to Jesus, may have actually happened before what he saw last. The middle of Revelation, if it was chronological, takes us back to Christmas. Now this is a very big blind spot for a pre-millennialist. Secondly, they are very pessimistic about the power and spread of the gospel before the returning of Jesus. And a last blind spot, a very popular version came on the scene in just the 18th century. I actually met Elaine at Biola University, and it taught this premillennial view, and it really only came on the scene in the 18th century. This view sees way too many symbols as statistics in apocalyptic literature. Remember, symbol, uh, numbers are symbols, not statistics, in the book of Revelation. Second view is called post-millennialism. Now let's figure out why. They think the second coming is going to break through after the thousand-year rule of Jesus. Now they get the award for being the most optimistic. They believe that the gospel is going to spread and the effects of the gospel will usher in a golden age. Jesus told stories. A mustard seed will explode into this massive plant. A woman will be making some bread with some leaven or making some dough and a little bit of yeast will just make an awful lot. They get these stories and they say, when you go to Munich and there's 6,000, oh, it's going to explode. It's going to explode. The kingdom is going to explode. So they're so optimistic. They're fired up. And yet, I think their blind spot is that they're a bit too optimistic. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus deals a death blow to Satan But sin and evil are just not totally dismantled, are they? Secondly, if we're going to have to wait for this golden age, we've got a long time ahead of us. And didn't Jesus say he could come back at any moment? The last view that's very popular is called ah, amillennialism. If you put an A in front of a word, it's like a, it, it denies the word. These people would say, let's be careful about a literal 1,000 years. Their view is that there is no literal 1,000 years. What they would say, though, is that the kingdom, the beginning of the millennial reign, arrived when Jesus came at his first coming. 
Jesus dies, he gets buried, he resurrects, he ascends, and the whole time, like it says in 1 John 3, Jesus says, I came to destroy the works of Satan. D.A. Carson is a Baptist scholar who tells us that by far this is the most common view among all the Christians in the last 2,000 years. Now, we've got to be careful. Just because it's been the most popular doesn't mean it's right. But let's also be humble. Most Christians who have studied the Scriptures have believed amillennialism. It's been held, in fact, since the second century, and it acknowledges that even at the end there will be a final evil onslaught of the enemy. But amillennialism, too, has a blind spot. They are so symbolic at times that they lose touch with what it actually symbolizes in literal, physical history now. See, Revelation is not poetry. It's actually literature that deals with history. It also lacks passion for the literal, imminent, any-moment return of Christ. Now, don't get lost. I know a lot of you are like, I can't believe I came to church for this sort of a lesson. No, we need to be thinking. This chapter has been interpreted in three ways for 2,000 years, and notice this, every view agrees on one thing. The best is yet to come because the kingdom is breaking through from the outside with grace. You might wonder, where do I stand as your pastor? The much better question is to ask, where do you stand? Is there scripture that says to you, this is why I believe what I believe? If you want to know, though, I'll show you my cards. I would call myself an eclectic, that means I like all the views, inaugurated, that means I really believe the kingdom has begun, millennialist. I believe in a millennium. Inaugurated means the kingdom has begun and we are now in this time period. Remember my burden for you is not that you walk away and you can remember what I just taught you. Do you believe that right now it is pregnant with opportunity for the gospel because Jesus our King has arrived? The key factor that convinced me of this amillennial position that really focuses more on an inaugurated eclectic millennial view has to do with our second point. I don't want to lose you. Here's the second point. The millennium is made meaningful when we see Satan's deception as restricted rather than free. I know some of you are not Christians and you don't believe that there is this personal being named Satan, but it is part of the story of Scripture. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what's he up to right now? His deception is restricted rather than free. Look at verse 2. This angel bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Why? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Bound. It says that Satan was bound. Take a look at this picture. You go to a zoo and you see a lion. Okay, I want you to turn to someone next to you is this line dangerous at all? Tell somebody next to you what's the nature of this line situation. If you were at the zoo with your kids, is the lion dangerous? Tell somebody next to you. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, no, that lion is not dangerous. There's a fence. But others of you are thinking, oh, that line still has danger. He's just restrained. 
Think about this when it comes to Satan. Satan experiences during the millennium an intensive binding that prohibits him, oh, not to kill you if you walk past the fence, but it prohibits him from doing one main thing. He does not experience an extensive binding forbidding him to do anything. Satan is alive. Why was he bound? Did you see it in Scripture? So that he might not deceive the nations. Oh, and this is very important for the time that we live in. He is bound so that right now he may not deceive the nations. Let's talk about deception personally. I could walk up to probably 90% of you and say, are you greedy? And you'd go, no, I'm not greedy. I think you're deceived. I could walk up to a lot of you and say, hey, what's up? And you're like, I'm busy. Hey, let's go do, I'm busy. I think when we hear each other say, I'm not greedy and I'm busy, I think it's a sign of personal deception. Why? Deception is when we're magically misled to believe a misrepresentation about the reality of God. It's so tricky because you are not ever going to think you're deceived. I'm not greedy. I'm busy. You want to know why greedy for Americans and busy are both deceptions? I have personal experience here. I don't see my greed because I always feel like I have a need. We heard today that this dear family that we already give a lot of money to needs $400 a month. You've gone to what, 28 churches? I would bet, unless Metro bails it out, I would bet 28 American churches will say this, well, more power to them in Munich. We can't supply that. We don't have the money. We're too needy. Is that not a lie, people? Don't you think Metro North alone, if each of us gave our first fruits to the kingdom and we weren't deceived thinking, oh, I don't have any money, if we weren't deceived about our greed, couldn't our church alone get them out on the mission field? I think we could. But we are personally deceived. How is I'm busy a bit of a, 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 bit of a deception? When you tell someone I'm busy, what you're actually saying to them, if you're going to be honest, is I don't have the time for you. You see, what you're really saying is you and that is not my priority. We need to stop saying we're busy. It's just, it, to me, it is a, a sign of personal deception. Now, notice something. Satan still is active. Oh, he walks around like a, pro, a, a lion that is ready to devour. You will wake up every day going, I'm not greedy and I'm busy. Deceptions. Satan is alive, but he's not well. What it says here is that he can no longer deceive entire nations from believing that Jesus has arrived, from believing that the Holy Spirit can help us to not be greedy and not lie about being so busy. Did you know that before Jesus arrived, other than Israel, every nation did not want to hear the story of God? But Jesus arrives, and all of a sudden, the deceptions of the nations start to be reversed. See, Israel was elected to bring light to the nations about the plan of God, and they failed. They kept it to themselves, just like we can be deceived to do as people at Metro North. Let's keep it to ourselves. Jesus would come as the light of the world to undeceive the nations, and it says that he takes Satan through this angel and tosses him into a bottomless pit. Now, that gets a lot of us interested. 
a bottomless pit. What is that? It's not a typical teenage boy. You'll know a teenage boy because they've got an Xbox, an iPhone, hormones, and they're always hungry. I have raised three teenage boys. They are bottomless pits. Now, that's not what this refers to. Did you know that a bottomless pit in Scripture is a spiritual sphere where Satan is operating during the church age? Like a lion behind a caged uh, area. It's a dark dimension existing alongside and in the midst of the earthly sphere. Satan is not cast out in a spatial sense so that he's no longer present and influential on earth. He is. He resides, though, restrained from an all-out attack and utter annihilation of the church. But how do we know that the thousand years has begun? Here's the secret. You've got to compare the little bit of Scripture in Revelation 20 with the big amount of Scripture that we've been given. Now, I'm going to rifle through some verses, and I want you to wake up because this is exciting stuff. It will help you to know what time you live in. Look at what happens in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus comes. And I'm going to be asking you, just so you stay awake with me, to fill in some of these words. Jesus came into Galilee, Mark chapter 1, saying what? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's interesting. When did Christ's kingdom begin? He arrives, the light of the nations arrives, and he's going to lift the veil of darkness off of the nations. The devil has blinded the nations, it is true, without restriction. But Jesus has arrived to reverse the deception. Mark chapter 3. He starts healing people, showing that, hey, the kingdom has arrived. And everybody's like, you know what? Maybe he's doing that through the power of Satan. And Jesus looks at people one day and he says this. Mark chapter 3. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, read that word, binds the strong man. Same word used in Revelation 20. Then indeed he may plunder the house. Jesus arrives to planet earth. All the nations don't even want to believe in Jesus except Israel, and they're not sharing it. He heals people. Hey, is this from Satan? There's no way. You can't. He says, you cannot go into a house if there's a big strong guy. If Todd Billman is at home, I'm going to have to tie Todd up if I'm going to plunder his goods. And Jesus says, there is no way I'm casting out demons, healing people, telling people that their sins can be forgiven unless I come and I tie up, or his word, bind Satan. We're asking the question, how is the millennium made meaningful? When is the millennium? We're looking at other scriptures and we're learning that when Jesus arrived, something happened in time. Look at John chapter 12. This is probably the most significant scripture for those of you that don't think we're living in the millennium. John chapter 12, Jesus says, The ruler of this world will be thrown out. Read the word. When? And you're, and you're saying, when is this going to happen, Jesus? The ruler of the world is going to be thrown out. Now when? He says, when I've been lifted up from the earth. That is meaning when he goes to the cross. I will draw who to himself? All people. Remember the promise? Satan will go into the bottomless pit. He'll be bound. He'll be restricted. What is the nature of that binding? He cannot deceive the nations. Jesus says, the kingdom has arrived. When I'm on the cross fighting this terrible Satan, 
I will be so magnetic in what I'm doing that all the nations will be drawn to me. He says he'll be thrown out. By the way, same word used in Revelation 20. The same word when he was cast into the pit. The ruler of this world will be thrown out now. When did the binding of Satan occur? I believe clearly at the cross. And look at the effects. No deception. Our Savior enters the abyss of the, of the, of the tomb, of the grave. When, when Jesus is in that grave, that dark emptiness is only going to be filled with life. That darkness is going to be dispelled by light. Satan is no longer unable to deceive sinners from responding to the gospel. That's why we have you in Munich. He is not able to deceive sinners. Oh, it's hard. Oh, it's difficult. But it's not just the Jews who believe in Jesus, but all nations can come into the kingdom. Matthew chapter 28, one of my favorite verses and probably yours. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, read it with me, of all nations. Now, I don't know if you're just sitting there learning or if you're excited about this. My burden is you know what time you're living in. It's not time to be greedy with the next thing that you get to make you feel that life has meaning. It's not time to tell your next person, I'm really busy, which is like code for, you are so not my priority who I need to love right now. No, we are living in a time where we can be undeceived from our own sin and get excited about the fact that someone in Munich is going to hear the story of Jesus and that gospel is going to break through and we will be with them in eternity. And we've been able to share in sending people out to do that. Oh, what a wonderful thing. Satan is unable to suppress the missionary activities of the church. Did you know that in A.D. 100, less than 1% of the world was Christian? But now, 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 12,000 people groups have heard the gospel and they've all got a church. I know it's small. I know it's just 6,000, but 6,000. Imagine those 12 disciples. What are we going to do with this whole kingdom thing? I hope we can grow a church of 6,000. That's amazing. Lastly, the millennium is made meaningful when you see that Satan's finale, and, I'm sorry, when you see that the saints' finale, what's our ending? Ends in intimacy. And Satan's finale ends in fire. Now this, I, emotionally, this is going to scare some of you. And I, and I will, I will help you if you bear with me. Some of you freak out when you hear about someone I love or maybe I will be in the lake of fire. I'm going I'm I'm to care for you in just a moment. But you need to see, lastly, that the millennium is made meaningful because if you are a saint, if you put your trust in what Christ has done, you are promised intimacy and Satan and those that side with him are promised fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, six says this to you, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. What's the first resurrection? It's spiritual, not physical. Look at Ephesians 2.6. When you believe in Christ, it says you are raised, it says you are raised us, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Some of you have gone from death to life, it says in John chapter 5, when you've trusted in Christ. But then it has this intimate word. It calls you right now, in, in time, a priest. 
A priest means because of the sacrifice that's already been given, you can be close to the Father. That's why we sang the song, Oh, you're a good, good Father. Thank you, Carter, for connecting us to that reality. The way that we are priests and can go to the Father is through the Son. We have intimate access right now through the sacrifice and through the blood of another. That blood of Christ has cemented us to the Father and that blood cements us to each other in our loving relationships. But keep your eyes on the meaning of the millennium. Jesus reigns and calls you to join him now. He is right now bringing into being a whole new humanity. We can experience now intimacy with Christ. Now here's the scary part, that lake of fire. Fire and brimstone. You're going to hear that today. I know a lot of you read this, and let's read it. When the thousand years are ended, Satan is going to be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire tormented day and night forever and ever. There's great hope. At the end, it's a little time. Satan will be released. The nations will be deceived. They'll surround the church, the saints. But fire will come. It reminds me of this Avenger movie. Some of you that are younger know that. Remember this scene when Loki, he he says, look, we're going to come to earth. And he says, you know, He's got this great phrase, I have an army. And, you know, Stark says, we have a Hulk. The whole earth was going to be taken over by this incredible group, but when that statement is brought there, is there is a power that is greater. And what we see here from John is there's two final facts. Fire, not a Hulk, a symbol of judgment is going to consume these armies and Satan will be tossed into the lake of fire, tormented day and night. This is where I think it hurts some of us. Tormented day and night forever and ever. It says in a couple of verses later that anyone that doesn't trust Christ will be tormented forever and ever. What would you say to one of your neighbors who says, I cannot get involved in Christianity because I don't like the idea of Satan, an angelic being, or a sinner being tormented forever and ever. I wouldn't do that to somebody else. What would you say to him? Let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about the fact that the duration of a crime does not determine the degree of the punishment? When someone goes into a school or a church and shoots somebody, the duration of the crime is quite quick. But does that determine the degree of punishment? No, if someone came into this church today and shot some people, and it was quick, wouldn't we want that person to experience life in prison? Most of us would hopefully appreciate that justice. The duration of a crime does not determine the degree of punishment. The nature of the crime against our infinitely good God determines the degree of deserved punishment. The infinite good God was rebelled against by Satan. The degree of punishment must be infinite. Jesus, the God-man, came to take that infinite punishment in the place of you as a sinner. This is why it's so good that a man did not die for you. The God-man died for you to take the infinite punishment. Have you trusted him? 
I'll ask it a thousand times as I'm your pastor. Have you simply trusted him? You will never be in that lake of fire. Let me end with a little story about Perpetua, who was one of the first people that died for her faith. She was in her 20s. A famous picture, there's a famous story told about her. Around AD 200 in Carthage, she had a little child, and they said, stop believing in Jesus, the fact that he's the king on the throne. And she was really nervous. To deal with her anxiety, she claims that God gave her a vision. She said that she prayed for a vision, and she actually saw a ladder leading up into the dimension of heaven. She really believed in a spiritual reality where Christ was in charge. In the vision she was given, she climbs the ladder to which various weapons are attached, but at the foot of the ladder there's a dragon. And in this vision she hears herself say, the dragon will not harm me in the name of Christ Jesus. And in the vision she steps on the dragon's head, and she climbs the ladder unharmed to Jesus. Now, I don't know if this woman in her 20s, who had a little baby, who was going to get killed, made this up, but I believe that sometimes the Lord breaks through from the outside to remind us of what's really going on. She saw a symbol in the dragon, not a statistic. She saw that he was restrained, not free. And she knew, because she did die for her faith, that the ending was simply the beginning of eternal intimacy with the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much again that we could have a focus on mission today. Not because it's something we're excited to do. It's something that because of the time we live in, Satan, our greatest enemy, is restrained. Lord, if we believe that, would we not be sending more missionaries? Would we not be going to more people? Would we not be in our own lives sharing the story, knowing that the deception of the nations cannot deal with the light of the gospel? Help us, Father, as a church. Help us this summer as we go so many directions to be missionaries. Fill us with hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.